BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Good of you to join us for another edition of the Bill Press Pod. Well, it's been two weeks since Hamas shocked the world with its violent attack on Israel, two weeks since Israel declared war on Hamas in return, and two weeks of nonstop shelling on both sides, mainly by Israel on Gaza, in anticipation of its ground invasion. Meanwhile, President Biden made a historic visit to Tel Aviv and gave an Oval Office address to the nation to reaffirm America's support for Israel, and humanitarian aid for displaced Palestinians has finally started pouring across the border. But this war in the Middle East is far from over. Indeed, with incoming missiles from Hezbollah in the north and Israeli missiles striking the West Bank and Syria in the last couple of days, there are growing fears that things could erupt into a wider war consuming the entire Middle East. So, time for us to get a good update on where things now stand and where we might be heading. And we turn again to our own foreign policy guru, national security analyst, and former head of the Plowshares Fund, Joe Cirincione. Joe Cirincione, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you again for joining us. Joe, one of these days, uh, we're going to talk you know, when things are doing great, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking about a peace summit or a yeah. new diplomatic yeah. treaty. Yes, but not, sadly, not today. Sadly, this is not one of these days. In fact, everybody that I talk to, Joe, and let's start there. Um, you know, it's been two weeks now, but people are really worried that this is getting more and more serious and could easily spiral out of control. We saw yesterday... Israeli shelling Syria and the West Bank, and of course Hezbollah sending missiles in from the north. Um, could this easily blow up? Is it likely to? What are the risks there? It, it could easily escalate. In fact, that is the focus of U.S. efforts right now, to prevent this conflict between Israel and Hamas from escalating uh, along two axes. First, uh, vertically. Uh, the, in the Just in the past 24 hours or so, Israeli strikes have killed another 486 people in Gaza, uh, according to uh, Palestinian officials there. Uh, and that brings the total to about 5,000 killed in the uh, air and artillery strikes, including approximately 1,500 children, about 1,200 women. Mm. So the, the, the slaughter is continuing, and the, the, one of the focuses of U.S. efforts is to try to remind Israel, and they just did this in a joint statement yesterday with other Western leaders from uh, Britain, France, Germany, etc., to remind Israel to protect civilian lives even as they defend themselves. And so there's great concern on that front. The other and perhaps more serious axis is the horizontal axis, the danger that this could go from a war between 
Israel and Palestinians in Gaza to a war that involves Hezbollah and the Lebanese uh, militants and forces up in the to the north of um, mm-hmm. of Israel, possibly Syrian fighters coming over the borders that uh, where Syria and Israel abut. And of course, the third front that is really the powder keg that people are fearful of going off is a new intifada, a new uprising in the West Bank. So I think I think the totals are now, I think the 100 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank just in the last 10 days or so, including, again, many children who have been killed by Israeli forces. So this is all right on the edge, and it could easily escalate out of control. There have also been increasing calls around the world, including by several world leaders, for a ceasefire uh, in, in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Is there any remote possibility of that? I think it'd be very, very difficult to get Israel to stop its bombardments right now. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Frankly, it's hard to see what further attacks in Gaza get Israel strategically. So just take humanitarian considerations out of it for a moment. Is this working for Israel? Is this making it more secure? Is it reducing the possibility of conflict? Is it is it killing Hamas? You know, when we talk about mm-hmm. the this mm-hmm. who we're killing in in Gaza right now, you don't see figures from Israel about Hamas. We have about a half dozen, maybe more senior Hamas leaders that have been killed, some in airstrikes, some in very targeted drone strikes, and you Israel does promote that. But that so far it it, it really does look like a handful of Hamas leaders versus well, as we just said, 5,000 Palestinian, mostly civilians killed. So is this really working for Israel? I think the calls for a ceasefire are going to increase. You see the UN making it. The UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez is, was at the, the border between is Gaza and Egypt calling for a ceasefire, calling for humanitarian assistance to come into Gaza. Um, the, the tide is really is turning. You feel the tide turning, the enormous sympathy that Israel got right after this horrific massacre. And we should be absolutely clear, nothing justifies what Hamas did. And the the, the loss of, we now think, 1,400 uh, innocent Israelis at the hands of these killers um, deserves a strong and forceful response. But the sympathy that that Israel got right after that uh, attack is now being supplanted by the concern and in some quarters outrage over what Israel is doing in Gaza. Well, you can see that. Um, I have in front of me uh, Monday, October 23rd, New York Times, right? Uh, Top of the page, color photograph, Palestinian bodies in Gaza on Sunday. Uh, And it looks at Washington Post, New York Times, most of the major papers, the photos they're showing, the victims they're talking about, every day now are no longer the 1,400 Israelis killed on October 7 or right, right around that time. But as you point out now, 5,000 maybe yeah. uh, Palestinians killed. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that does begin to change the narrative. 
doesn't it? Absolutely. And for all the personal and really terrifying and heart-wrenching stories you're hearing about what Israelis went through in those kibbutzim, in those... Yeah, yeah. They're awful, right? And you'll see lots of them, but for every one of them, there's now a dozen Palestinian stories and often involving children. Let me give you just two right off the the bat. In the West Bank, I saw a video just two days ago from a a family shot from the window as their 15-year-old son went out in the street to see if it was safe to come out because IDF soldiers had come into that little village. And as he's looking around the corner to see if it's safe to come out, you see boom, 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 three shots and he's dead shot dead you know, on the street, a 15-year-old, unarmed, just looking. His father rushes out to try to retrieve his body, see if he still, you know, he can help his son. Bang, he's hit, rushed to the hospital in critical condition. And then there's the stories that are coming out today from hospitals in Gaza, warning that if they don't get fuel very, very soon, their electric generators are going to shut down. And they're talking about neonatal facilities at some of their hospitals. They have 300 uh, children, they say, would be in peril immediately after an electricity uh, cutoff. People, kids who are in now prenatal or rather uh, intensive care. So you could see dead babies dying in the hospitals from th- this war, you know, more than matching the horrible pictures we saw of dead Israeli babies uh, in the in the kibbutzim outside of Gaza. So this is, I would say right now, this war is going questionably for Israel on a military front, and it's going terribly for Israel in a world opinion front. For uh, the last 10 days or so, Joe, there's been this... C- kind of awesome buildup of Israeli forces at the border and all this talk of a ground invasion. Uh, I've been surprised. <laughs> it Nothing has happened. They haven't gone in yet on the ground. Why not? Is it still inevitable? And when do you think that's going to begin? You know, it's hard for me to see a way that Israel would not go in. Yeah. In, in this, but, right? so, so what's taken them so long? What? You know, everyone in Israel wants the force to go in. You know, there, there is unanim- the unanimity of opinion in Israel, which is basically, in two words, destroy Hamas. Get these guys. Right. So if that is a yeah. sentiment, right? That's what you feel. How do you do that? Well, that's what the Israeli forces are now trying to p- patch together because they didn't have a plan for this. Mm. They weren't Mm -hmm. counting on this. And so part of the hesitation is just getting the forces together. But I would say that those forces have been ready to go for the last week or so. And you saw visits to the border from senior Israeli officials rallying the troops, and they haven't gone yet. I believe, and I can't prove this, but I believe that President Biden is actively seeking to delay the invasion. We've heard some reporting on that. And that's what's stopping them for right now. President Biden's plea is to delay the invasion and think more deeply about this, that he says. Don't be don't be uh, consumed by your rage. 
Think about what you're doing, establish realistic objectives, minimize civilian casualties and have an exit plan, which they currently Uh, don't have. So I believe it's U.S. pressure that's delaying this for now and U.S. pressure that is finally resulting in some humanitarian uh, truck convoys coming in through the Rafah gate in, uh, in southern Gaza. Well, so you touched on the point I wanted to ask you about next, because I remember Colin Powell making that argument, right? You can't, don't go in unless you've got a plan on what your exit strategy is, right? How you end this thing and what your ultimate goal is and how to get out. Mm. Is there one? Is there an end game? There is a vague three-part plan that Israel has put forward, and it's, it's largely sort of rhetorical without many details. And part one is to destroy Hamas and its infrastructure, and that's right. what they're doing now. And so what they, believe, they claim, and I think this is their genuine aim, is that the buildings they're hitting, they consider part of the Hamas infrastructure, even if they're mosques, churches, schools, etc. They believe Hamas is using those facilities in some way. That's what they're going after, command and control hubs that they believe Hamas has. And that results in massive civilian casualties. And they're saying, look, that's the price of doing business here. That's what has to happen in order for those mm-hmm. strikes. Part two is an end to that and um, with or without a ground invasion and limit more limited operations that they say will be mop-up operations to uproot um, Hamas. Neither one of those, however, has a time on it. And you may think in terms of days, because after all, most Israeli wars have been conducted in days or weeks. 50 years ago, the Yom Kippur War started on October 6th. In fact, the October 7th attack marked the 50th anniversary this year of that. Well, that was over by October 26th. And that was a major war. That took 20 days fighting Egypt and Syria and other Arab countries. That was over in 20 days. This, This is just getting started. So we're talking months of fighting. One Israeli general said to prepare for a 10-year war. Ooh. Mm. I, I know. Well, we can get to but that when you start to think of how you uproot Hamas, yeah. you have to talk about a very extensive operation. Remember, we tried to uproot Al-Qaeda, disrupted their operations, but never did extinguish them. We tried to crush ISIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, disrupted their operation, killed their leadership, but never got rid of ISIS, right? So this is very difficult to do. And the third phase is one where they imagine Israel withdraws from Gaza, that some sort of peacekeeping operation is put in place and Israeli, in the, their phrase, you know, relinquishes responsibility for the, the lives of, the, of Gaza, that they would just get out and cut Gaza off. Free. And then and then who runs Gaza then? No plan for that. No question, uh, no, no, no clarity on, on who would do that. And that's what Biden is asking him to think about. And he sat in in his amazing visit to Israel yeah. just a few days ago. He sat in on the Israeli war cabinet deliberating on this, as did Secretary of State Tony Blinken a few days earlier, completely unprecedented. This has never happened. A U.S. president has never sat in on any country's security cabinet as they're meeting, plotting a war. It's never happened for any in Israel that they've had a foreign leader sit in. And he was gently, according to all reports, gently probing these questions. What, what are your objectives? How are you mm-hmm. going to achieve them? How are you going to minimize civilian casualties? How are you going to end the operation? What's your plan for after the fighting stops? And apparently, 
the Israelis did not have very good answers to those questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about the Biden visit, um, Joe. How important was that, and what do you believe its impact will be? It, it, it was an enormously impressive visit on any level that you can think of. The, the, the fact that he went at all, only the second time a U.S. president has visited a war zone not controlled by the U.S. military. The first time was when Biden went to Kiev, <laughs> yeah. Ukraine. So this right. is just an amazing, right off the bat, just that symbolism. Two, incredibly effective. You know, he got the attention of the Israelis and apparently got their agreement to open up at least a limited supply of, of food, uh, water and medicine through the Rafa gate down in southern Gaza, at least got them to do that. Um, apparently has some success in delaying the incursion and having them rethink their priorities, but we'll, we'll see. And of course, he but he does all this. See, those were his sort of goals, his sort of aims, but he does all this. I think brilliantly with a, a leading with a, a huge hug for Israel, and in this case, yeah. physically for Bibi Netanyahu, showing yeah. you our support. We are with you. We have your back. We are with you through this. And that's two thirds of his message. And the one third of his message, and most of that's delivered privately, is caution. Be careful. And some publicly, as he, and, and he said it, I, I, I I don't think you could have said it any better than he, he did where he uses his personal experience to say, we understand your rage. We have gone through your rage. He reminds the Israeli mm -hmm. audience about 9-11. And he says, but don't be consumed about this. You know, quote, this is one sentence I want to read you. After 9-11, yeah. we were enraged in the United States. And while we saw justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. Yep. You yep. don't hear presidents use that phrase very often. And he says that he made mistakes. He regrets backing the war in, in Iraq. So it's a very personal message. It resonated powerfully. I, Joe Biden is the most popular politician in Israel right now uh, by far. Uh, and then he came back and within 12 hours, I think, addressed the nation um, I saw your tweet, Joe. I think you said this is Biden's finest hour. Yes. I, I mean, he's really risen to the challenge, real, risen to the moment and has the ability. As you know, Joe Biden is not the most um, articulate, articulate communicator who's occupied the yep. Oval Office, can't compare to Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama, for example. But you know, his sincerity, his his knowledge, he knows this issue. He's been dealing with the Middle East, as he will remind you in a heartbeat, since Golda Meir. Yeah. And he tells right. the story of him meeting Golda Meir as a young U.S. senator. So he knows this. He understands this. And he has tremendous empathy. And is some of the Israeli coverage of his visit was that he, you know, this is what Israelis were looking for, somebody who would listen to them. He spent hours with the, with the victims, with the families of the hostages, et cetera. So then he comes to the Oval Office and in 15 minutes, he, you know, gives a, 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 a very clear strategic and articulate rationale for why we should help Israel right now right. and links it to Ukraine. These are mm -hmm. two democracies being attacked by authoritarian autocratic forces. It is in our national security interest to help both, I think, very convincingly, and then also adds those notes of caution, particularly for, for Israel, about, about you know, democracies 
don't slaughter innocent civilians. We take care you to avoid the killing of civilians. Again, pressing right. Israel publicly to ratchet back the attacks, to be more targeted in your approach, consider other ways of accomplishing your objectives. So in, in addition to, again, reaffirming in that speech from the Oval Office, uh, our, our solid support for Israel and their right to respond, there were those two messages, you just identified them, that, 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 that were very, very much a part of his uh, message to the American people. Uh, one was, and he did this within the first minute and a half, I think, of his speech, linking Ukraine and Israel, as you pointed out, two democracies, both under attack. Our responsibility is to stand with both. Um, do you think that message carries? Will it work? I think it's going to carry with uh, several of his ki critical audiences for this. One is with the Congress. I think this is a this is again another brilliant That's the big one, <laughs> a brilliant Biden move to put this together. It's a big package he's asking for: one hundred and four billion dollars, sixty one or sixty two billion dollars of that would go to Ukraine, fourteen billion directly to Israel for military supplies, another ten million for humanitarian aid in the region, and some for border security, et cetera. So he bundles this together and he has, he has a comprehensive sort of security uh, supplemental that he's asking for. I think it will work. All indications are that the Republican leadership, at least the Republican leadership that exists in the Senate, <laughs> in the Senate right. is, yeah. is, is, is ready to go this. And you see American uh, support for this uh, and it's and it's and I think this worked again to reassure Israel because one of the things you're saying to Israel is not just our hearts are with you, but our our wallet is with you as well. We're going to give you more money for this on top of the 3.8 billion dollars we give Israel every year for military aid. Um, yeah. I, I think it was an extremely effective measure uh, speech, and and you can judge that by the the you know the. You watch Fox News covering it, and they had they had no criticisms of the speech. They had yeah. to go to border security to go find ways to criticize the president. Yeah. But I think he's he's showing yeah. real strategic leadership at this point, and it's widely recognized across the political spectrum. And Republican leader Mitch McConnell has come out very strongly uh, on Sunday, saying, "Absolutely, the Absolutely. two are linked. That you cannot separate one from the other." Yeah, yeah. my colleague and friend uh, Jonathan Alter wrote a nice column where he called Biden's speech pitch perfect in tone and, and substance. Uh, I think many people feel the same way. And the second message, the call for restraint, you indicated earlier, we already see signs that, uh, uh, that Netanyahu, uh, Israeli generals, have, are, ta are, are taking that into account. Well, I think they're, they're taken into account by the pause in the ground yeah. invasion. But in, just as we're talking, we just finished a day of intensified Israeli strikes. So the, the actual operations are not going, no, they're not taking into account yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, Biden says, you know, in that Oval Office speech, we're heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life. And again, one of his other audiences is the broader Middle, Middle East. He's very worried about about Arab sentiment overall turning against Israel, you know, basically washing away the last four or five years of Abraham Accords and budding U.S., Israeli, Saudi deals, all that getting washed away in, in the blood of this war. 
And he stresses in his speech the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best they can. So no, I would mm. say Israel is not doing that yet. And on the other front of humanitarian aid, Israel is very reluctant to let in humanitarian aid. They didn't want to let these trucks in. In fact, we had the Minister of Defense, Gallant, uh, telling um, the Times of Israel, a conservative publication uh, just the other uh, day, this weekend, that he, he, was, he was in a meeting with right-wing Knesset members, the Israeli parliament, who were battering him for agreeing to let in humanitarian aid. And Gallant says, what am I supposed to do? This is the president of the United States. He gives us our weapons. He gives us our supplies. I couldn't say no. Well, that, for, yeah. he's, he's, for us, that's a positive sign that Biden had, had pressed him. Yeah. The trucks are still a trickle, about 30 so far in the last two days, but it's the beginning of something if we can sustain it. Israel still won't allow fuel into Gaza to power those generators to save those babies' lives, among other, among other things, to give them drinking water to fuel the, their sal- desalination plants. He still, they still won't give them fuel, but again, Biden and the U.S. are working on that. Um, we'll have to see. And there are restrictions on that aid, which may be hard to deliver, right? That the aid does not in any way go to Gaza, but just to uh, Palestinian citizens. Right. And this is, you know, just uh, today, right before we recorded this, um, uh, the White House Press Secretary Kirby was at the podium and he was talking about this very subject. It's understandable that Israel's concerned that this aid not be diverted to Hamas, particularly fuel. They don't want Hamas stealing this, as they have done in the past. So he says, this is why we have, you know, partners on the ground watching this. This is why there's a U.S. coordinator on the ground in Egypt watching this. We want to prevent that as well. And if there is a major Hamas diversions of the aid, um, that could jeopardize the whole operation. So we're conscious of that, trying to avoid it, but trying to relieve the suffering of 2, 2.3 million Palestinians who don't back Hamas, who didn't have anything to do with the attack, but are being punished and, 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 and sadly killed and wounded by the Israeli reaction to the attack. It may be the least important question of this moment to even consider, but does Bibi Netanyahu survive this? I don't see any way that he does. You know, there's, uh, it's, it's hard to find an Israeli uh, who, who supports him at this point. You know, my family, as you know, uh, some of my family lives in Israel and they hate the guy. They didn't like him before this and now they, they want to yeah. get him out. You know, a week after 9-11 here in the United States, George Bush had a popularity of 90%. It was some of the mm-hmm. most recorded for any U.S. president ever in history. A week after October 7th, a BB's popularity is at 42%. And just today, a poll, Monday, a, t- a poll comes out in, um, in Israel that shows only 20% of Israelis have faith in the Whoa. government. Yeah. So if there was a, some kind of thought in Netanyahu's mind that his troubles and his divided government was going to benefit from this conflict, a rally around the flag effect, it's not mm-hmm. happening at all. They blame Netanyahu for the intelligence failure. They blame him for diverting military from Gaza to the to the support the settlers in the West Bank who are expanding their settlements. They blame him for his corruption, his inept leadership, for his previous support of Hamas. Remember, 
Netanyahu thought it was a good thing that Hamas was in right. Gaza because right. this would split the Palestinian leaderships and prevent there being any coherent partner for peace, as he said. Uh, so no, I, I think as soon as the conflict dies down, um, calls for his resignation, which are already there. There are already demonstrations demanding his resignation. Mm-hmm. Those will intensify and he'll have to leave office. Uh, so as we have talked so far in the last 20 minutes or so, um, there are in fact two major conflicts and the United States on the record on the, in, in support of both Israel and Ukraine. Joe, let's take a quick break and come back and uh, get the update on the second front the Ukraine front. Well, friends, you know, whenever we uh, talk about a crisis anywhere in the world, it seems, whether it's um, a natural disaster or man-made disaster, the first ones on the ground are the people of the World Central Kitchen, led by Jose Andres. Of course, and today, you know it, they're on the ground both in Israel and in Gaza, providing hot meals and whatever help they can to the people so much in need. I ask you again and encourage you again, uh, they can't do their work without our help. So check out the website, World Central Kitchen. It's wck.org. You can be reminded of all the great work they're doing around the world and send them whatever help you can to wck.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's podcast, uh, bringing all of us up to date on the war in the Middle East and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, Our guest, our own foreign policy guru, a national security analyst and former head of the Plowshares Fund, Joe Sirincioni. So, Joe, uh, Ukraine's kind of been knocked off the front pages for the last couple of weeks, but that war is far from over. Uh, it's been dragging on and on. How do you assess the current status? Uh, 
Ukraine maintains the initiative. They are continuing to slowly advance, um, but it is a hard grind. Dozens of Ukrainian soldiers are dying every day. Um, They are adopting what some people call the Ukrainian way of war. It's not the way the U.S. military would have conducted this or, in fact, advised the Ukrainians to proceed. They were in favor of a massed uh, armored assault Mm -hmm. right at Russian dug-in trenches and concrete structures to smash through it. The the Ukrainians probed that kind of attack back in uh, July and August and got hammered by the the blown-up vehicles by the mines and then concentrated artillery fire and shifted over to what you you may call sort of this armored maneuvered warfare where they're probing various weak various parts of the Russian lines have penetrated is using this technique past the first line of defense in uh, two areas of of uh, of the Russian occupied territory and have also started doing something very interesting concentrating on deeper strikes behind Russian lines, knocking off their logistical hubs, their transportation routes. Some of those strikes have actually succeeded in basically removing the Russian fleet from the Black Sea. They hit at uh, the the Russian port in Crimea with uh, long-range missiles and drones and uh, damaged so many warships that the Russians are now removing their warships and moving them back into Russia proper, which greatly helps the Ukrainian efforts to keep the grain flowing from their country, from those southern ports on the Black Sea. And that just in the last couple of days, they've gotten and deployed the shipments of ATACMs. These are the long-range missiles Mm -hmm. that the U.S. has finally giving Ukraine. They can travel 100 miles. And they did enormous damage in their first use to a Russian uh, airfield, damaging, according to U.S. uh, assessments, about 20 to 25 aircraft, planes, and helicopters. So you're starting to see that. Uh, President Zelensky says that we must advance at least a kilometer, 500 meters every day to, to win this war. And, and that's what they're doing, a slow, steady advance. Will it result in a break of Russian defenses at some point? That's their hope. But winter is coming, and that will mm. probably lead to a decline in, in, in combat activities. Um, and finally on this, there was some concern that the war in um, Israel would detract from uh, Ukraine and might jeopardize Ukrainian funding. It doesn't appear that that's going to be the case. Uh, the way Biden has structured the aid appeal, it will probably result in a major new uh, approval for, as I, as we said earlier, $61, $62 billion in aid for Ukraine. That should be enough to get them through the winter, winter and into the spring of 2024. Uh, could Ukraine do this on its own? Is, you know, is U.S. aid essential to the conduct of this war? They absolutely could not do this on their own. U.S. aid U.S. leadership, U.S. diplomacy is absolutely essential to the defense of Ukraine. And Biden made that clear in his Oval Office address. And most strategic analysts uh, agree with this. If Putin were to succeed, if he were to conquer Ukraine or even, you know, drive them to a halt and continue his occupation of that 20 
percent of Ukraine or so that he holds, this could have tremendous negative security implications for for Eastern Europe. The Baltic nations are, are largely unknown to be on his hit list. Next, he calls mm-hmm. them Russia's Baltic provinces. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so this is this you know yes, it's costly both in Ukrainian lives and American dollars, but it is nothing compared to what we'd have to face if NATO had to fight uh, Putin directly. So let me ask you the same question about Ukraine that we talked about with Israel and Gaza. What is the exit strategy here? What is the end game? Does it include uh, pushing Russia out of Crimea or, or do we know? Yes, the Ukrainian end game is to liberate all of Ukrainian territory from Vladimir Putin's occupation, including the territory of Crimea that Putin took in 2014. Um, could you do? Could there be a peaceful? So it's, the answer is: this is mainly a military solution to this that Ukraine wants to reconquer to liberate its. Not just you know we talk about occupied territory, but it's also occupied people. So to free those people from Russian rule, which by all accounts is, is brutal in the territories they occupy. Is there a diplomatic way to solve this? The, there could be. There mm-hmm. could be. The problem is that Putin doesn't want to negotiate. His strategy is to hang on and to wait us out. And by wait us out, he means wait till November 2024 and see uh, if Donald <laughs> Trump wins. That's his exit strategy is reelecting uh, Donald Trump to be president of the United States again. Yeah, well, he elected him once, right? He once- <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> he did it once. Can he do it again? <laughs> he, he wants to reelect him. But is this having, I see different reports of this, is this having any negative impact inside of Russia? Uh, does it impact the Russian economy at all or Putin's you know, hold on leadership? You um, know, the, the Russian economy hasn't cratered. And so it, it continues along and it's sort of anemic condition. Um, the elite are still doing fine. They have some personal sanctions on them. They can't travel to certain places, but they continue to, to make money. Um, you, could, you know, Russia doesn't have a big economy. Its economy is about the size of Italy's or Spain. But, uh, you know, the, for the handful of oligarchs, it's plenty. Um, so n- not... No, it hasn't brought Russia to you. Mm-hmm. would think that the sanctions we imposed would have done that, but they haven't so far. Or just the money that they're spending, right? Just, that, yes, that. it's enormous. There's a, and, uh, or the lives they're losing. There was a stunning estimate out uh, today from the United Kingdom uh, Defense Ministry saying that they estimate that Russia has lost 500 thousand Russians killed or wounded in this war. I think 480,000 killed or wounded. Mm. Uh, That is an enormous loss. In fact, they're so short of troops, they're sending wounded soldiers back into into, into action. Um, So can he wait us out? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. It's not at all clear that he can last till November 2024. And of course, we know that if only Donald Trump were in the White House, neither of these wars would have happened, right? <laughs> that, that's his claim. And <laughs> that he, if he comes in, the Ukraine war would be over in a day. That's what he says. Well, that's... Yeah, because he'd give, he would give it all to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, he would surrender. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Israel, the Middle East, Ukraine, 
uh, all up to date, not necessarily all good news, but Joe, but thank you so much for uh, your update. And thanks you, you know, thanks for staying on top of it for us <laughs> and then uh, letting us know how things are going. Joe Sirincioni. Uh Always good to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Joe Sirincioni, keeping our eye on both the Middle East and Ukraine. Uh, we'll talk again about the latest on Friday's Roundtable with three top political reporters. Also be looking at week number three without a speaker in the House. <laughs> nine candidates. Maybe they will. I doubt it, but maybe they will have a new speaker uh, by Friday. Uh, And we'll also check and see whether any more of the former friends of Donald Trump have decided to turn and testify against him. Uh, A lot coming on for the big roundtable, our next edition of the Bill Press Pod on Friday morning. Have a great week, everybody. We'll look for you on Friday on the Bill Press Pod and the Reporters Roundtable. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.